Hello and welcome to episode 14 of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. My name is Joe Montague and I am your host. I hope you've all had a great couple of weeks and enjoyed the last double episode. I have another double episode for you this week. I hope that this is an okay medium for you all. I know that my attention span, uh, even when I'm having the conversation, sometimes lapses towards the end if it's been a couple of hours. And I know that I wanted the conversations to be expansive. And I was finding the more comfortable I became as a, a host, if you like, the more I wanted to get out of the guests. So the conversations inevitably have started to become a little longer. And I know from podcast listening experience, I begin to wane after 40 minutes to an hour or so. I wanted to keep these quite short. So two parts seem like a sensible way of doing it. It means that the interviews can be slightly more in depth and I can let the interviewees talk a little bit longer. So the next few episodes will actually be two parties. I have a very exciting guest coming up after this one as well. And this one is also a very exciting guest. So I'm chatting with Neil Innes from ATA Records. They are, uh, ATA stands for All Things Analog. And they, Neil has a studio that he runs with his label mate, Pete. They record and write a huge amount of music. They're playing on a lot of the releases that they release as a label. So ATA is also a record label. It's a very cool little space. If you go onto my Instagram at All You Need Is Drums, I've put some photos of the studio on there. It's littered with tape machines, old gear, amplifiers, you name it, he's got it there. It's it's ridiculous. And we've got some more information coming up in the podcast on how what the gear that he's got. It's unbelievable. I've known Neil for a few years now, and he's just a wealth of knowledge on analog recording, has a real... 60s mentality to do it in terms of the way he does things go and check out the band camp of 88 ata records and have a listen to the some of the stuff they release it sounds like it's something straight out of the 60s it's amazing and neil is a, a humble guy so he won't admit that he knows what he's doing too <laughs> too much but he really really does know what he's doing even if he's just following his gut instinct it's somehow correct he's he's fantastic so i'm, I'm no doubt that you will learn a huge amount from this conversation um, so we'll dive right in. Here we go. Neil Innes. Enjoy. Okay. Um, I am joined by a friend of mine, Neil Innes, who runs a record label and studio called ATA Records. Hi, Neil. Hello, Joe. <laughs> this is a bit of a first for me, actually. So the first time on the podcast, I am physically in the room with the person I'm interviewing. So I'm looking at Neil right now, and that's not uh, not happened before. Usually, as you all know, it's on the phone or... Um, on a video chat, so uh, I'm I'm actually really pleased to be here at ATA. So thanks for having me. You're welcome. I want to start. You notice I I will have given you a little bit of uh, information in the introduction, but I want to let Neil sort of explain what ATA is and sort of what it's about, and then we'll start digging deeper into it. So if you could just maybe um maybe sort of describe the space that we're in, and then you can sort of tell people like the, the sort of overall vibe of what, what is ATA. Okay, so at the moment we are sat in our control room, uh, which is a garage. <laughs> Basically my whole studio is a set of garages in Leeds uh, in the north of England. Um, in here we have basic, basically just a lot of analogue recording equipment um, that would have been used in the 60s to make records. So 
the sort of premise of kind of what I've collected for making the music that I write and I'm part of with ATA Records is what would they have used back in the in the sixties? Um, because a lot of our music is very nineteen sixties influenced, uh, sort of soul, jazz, R and B, um, Afro beat things things like that. Uh, so we're sat at my mixing desk, which is a 1968 uh, Swedish broadcast console, um, and sat beside that is a 3M M56 two-inch 16 track from 1968 as well. And behind Joe, sort of linking into his uh, Beatles obsession, <laughs> is a one-inch M23 uh, eight-track, which the Beatles used on the White Album, I think, which was the first sort of eight-track that EMI uh, got in. That Up to that point, they were using four-tracks, weren't they? Yes. So I, t- I actually I saw a wonderful picture. Uh, I follow a Facebook group. I think it's called At The Controls, oh, right. which is basically um, just pictures, pictures <laughs> from studios, which are... My, are one of my biggest research resources yeah. for what I, you know, for things that people do and yeah. the equipment that they used. So, for example, and I'm going off piste already, <laughs> um, the 3M tape machines were quite ubiquitous in studios for for a certain period of making records. Like, I think, I don't know if you've got the book, but I've got the book there, which is the Great British Recording Studio. So you have that book? I don't. Have that book? But I should, should I, if I should have it, I Wonderful, <laughs> wonderful book, just about all the British recording studios. Weirdly written by an American, but he did an amazing <laughs> job. But inside that, you flick through every studio, and in every studio, tucked in a corner, pretty much, is a 3M tape machine. So it's they're quite sort of uh, whether you know it or not you know the sound yeah you know the sound anyway back to that uh, <laughs> at the controls is it magic what's the magic what's the what's the guy that uh, John Lennon brought into the Beatles oh, that did is it magic it's like magic from, Allen or something it's like magic that, Al- it? is it, it's not magic it's Al, not, Al. that, not that Alan, that's a, that's an actual magician in Leeds is Man, it? <laughs> we, we magic Al who goes around gigs and sort of does uh, amazing magic but it's um oh God, I've forgotten the guy's name anyway there's a great picture of him with three of them Oh, yeah. In that sort of uh, whimsical studio yeah, yeah. that he couldn't build, <laughs> you know, which is, it's, it's, I want to know more about this guy. I really yeah. want to know more about him because it sounds so fucking ridiculous, <laughs> yeah. the stuff that he did. Anyway, you rarely see like those, you rarely see any of these machines. Like I think of the 3M of the M56 that's there, there were 300 and something made in total. Yeah. So, how many were in the UK? Like, I know for a fact that that one that you're looking at there came from Air Studios. Wow. You know, so they, they've all they've all been generally in a sort of yeah. high-end studio because, and again, I'm totally, I've gone off on one. I love it. But the, um, I found out how much they cost, mm. and they cost something like £24,000 in 1968. Ooh. I was told by one of the guys who's the sort of foremost sort of repairers in, yeah, in, yeah. in the UK. So I think a flat in London, like in a good part of London, costs six grand. A Beetle, you know, sorry, a Mini costs yeah, like yeah. six hundred pounds. Twenty four thousand. So that's twenty four thousand sixties money. Yeah, sixties money before you've even converted it to yeah. modern money. That's madness. It is madness. Yeah. Like I've heard other old studio guys talk about this as well. Like when they bought their first tape machines, and they're just 
prohibitively expensive, like cost four or five times the amount of their house. Wow. So this, you know, this studio is just kind of chocker full of a lot of this old gear, yeah. which plays a plays one part but an important part in the sound that we achieve with the music that we're trying to make you know um and through the door <laughs> so is my live room which again is just kind of full of like lots of old microphones many from stuart in one of your earlier podcasts that's exodia it. microphones that's right I think an extinct audio you know episode two episode two i think he was um and like so, I I get a lot of my mics from Stuart, mm -hmm. you know. Which I have to say, if anybody's here listening and they're kind of like, "Oh, I'm thinking about getting a vintage ribbon mic," or thinking about getting a new microphone, go to Stuart. He's the man. It's like there's no point fanning around on the internet no. when you can just buy one from him, and it's like everything everything through there. All my mics are just tip top condition, you know, because they come from him. I just yep. don't don't waste my time anymore. Well, he, you're the reason that I know. Stuart, uh, for a little bit of context, Neil is kind of like my recording guru. <laughs> and, uh, any questions I've ever had, I ask Neil and then ignore his advice and yeah. then come back cap in hand and say I should have listened to him <laughs> a year later when I've made when I've made my choice and then I've realised that he was right. <laughs> You'll be punished financially. <laughs> yes, and that, that has been the case, yeah. But I feel less uh, less guilty about that now. I know how much tape machines cost. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I feel like I've got permission to go out and buy loads of stuff. Where is it? Yeah. Yeah, but we like the weird thing about these tape machines in particular. Um, they're 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 kind of like what they're worth now is is really arbitrary, mm. you know. So like the those those two tape oh, I hit my mic uh, those two tape machines uh, that we're looking at there because I've got two of the M fifty sixes because uh, one well they have often died <laughs> right <laughs> they 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 have died a lot and been brought back to life, but. I think I picked them both up for under a hundred, under a thousand pounds. Wow! Because like the cost to do them up, it's more than they're actually worth. So I've I've bought into this thing. It's a sound that I love. That like I through the other room, uh, yeah. behind you, which is my current storage room, where there there are more tape machines. <laughs> um, there's this sort of uh, younger, sexier brother, or uh, sibling of the 3M56, which is the 3M79. Okay. And they are, they came out. And I think this is why you don't see many of the M56s is within two, three years, they put out an improved version called an M79, which um, is better. Okay. Doesn't sound as good. <laughs> but we're, again, we're talking like fine hairs here. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's because the other thing is the M79 is another sound that you know you just know because so much of music was made with with yes. them. Yeah, like yeah. if you know Queen, you know the M seventy nine. You know if you know. So like the um, I used to have a couple of them from Olympic Studios, wow. and one of them had a, a Ford badge stuck on the front of it, and it was the famous. Oh, you've got the Ford badge one, and they stuck the Ford badge on that because it broke down so much. Like that was their joke, <laughs> you know. But the amount of records that was that were recorded on that machine. Is just ridiculous. That's so. That's you know. very cool. Yeah. So, but very quickly they were usurped. Yes. So you know. So the thing is, not many people know about them. Not many people know how to repair them. Uh, you know, and so therefore they've kind of fallen through the cracks a little bit. Yeah. 
you know. So, so yeah, so I've got quite a few of them. <laughs> Currently, we, we did a, st- an, a stock take of tape machines recently. Yeah. And I think I've got 11 tape machines. Wow. <laughs> and, like, I'm going to have to get rid. We're, get, we're getting rid of some of them because we are about to... The studio's really disheveled in it. You've been here plenty of times. Yes. It's got charm. Yes. But it's a bunch of garages with a lot of cobwebs. <laughs> it doesn't smell very good. It's great place. I love it make it like i don't know what i i've had it for 10 years no 12 12 years i found out maybe even 13 uh so maybe we could go on a bit about that yeah <laughs> so i first got this place with a friend of mine called bob birch who was an incredible hammond organ player yes I know for Bob. a yeah. band called the new master sounds and bob found it and it was basically he'd been working in a piano shop so this was a piano workshop to begin with um yeah headingley pianos it was called and so we only had the live room through there and uh the rent was 160 pounds a month (laughs) the rent hadn't gone up when i went to visit my landlord to ask for more garages it turns out the rent hadn't gone up for around 20 years so uh, (laughs) which at which point he put the rent up um so we had one live room we could we did a gig you know, once we had a residency, yeah. that paid for it easily. Amazing. Um, and since, you know, over the years, uh, I just kept on doing it up and doing it up and expanding, got another garage, because it's in a big row of garages. Yeah, I should quickly explain that when you, so when you drive in to here, you drive between two... Uh, it's in the backyard. It's yeah, in the backyard. So it's like two semi... Uh, two, they're like semis, aren't they? And you drive between them, yeah. but they're, they're flats. Yes. And then you drive in between them to the garages out the back, and it's in like a... It's a um, U-shape. Yeah, a U-shape of garages. And it's all garages in the yeah. backyard, yeah. Um, and so we've got essentially, what, five garages, I think, sort of in a row, and I've I've kind of breeze-blocked up. Well, my friend, yep. I will mix the cement. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so other people have done the building work. Yeah. But they, like, we've breeze blocked up doors and knocked through you know to create sort of live room control room and sort of store room um and through in the other room yeah it's it's got charm but it's it's cold like i i don't have this stomach to kind of work here in the winter yeah anymore like i used to like i remember being in there on the first that before i started up the record label so the ata stands for all things analog which it isn't, you know, like it's the, all things analog is my aspiration, yes. you know, and I'm almost there, you know, um, but we have to use computers as well for stuff. But um, the, I remember before the record label was formed, like catalog number 80A001 is not, you can't get it anywhere uh, because it's a record that I made before. The record label. Uh-huh. Uh, we've got it pressed up on CD. It's before we did any vinyl. It's before I started the record label. But I remember being in the far corner where the drums are around December. I'd been making this album for about nine months. I was approaching the end of it. And I learned, I kind of learned to play guitar, like, or learned to be a better guitar player on that album because I'm a bass player by trade. Um, it used to frustrate me that I couldn't sort of convey ideas in the way that i'd like to so i was kind of like right i better pick up 
uh, you know, an instrument that I can do that with. I had previously learned guitar as a kid. Yeah. You know, I'd, done, I'd, I'd actually done classical guitar as a, as a kid for like a year or so yeah, right. and al- almost studied it at university. Did you? Weird, well, not a weird story. Basically, it's back in the time where there was no such thing as rock school because I'm an old person. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, it was like back in the um, in the 90s. So I, I was at in Scotland and to do higher music, which is the same as A-level music. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I wanted to do uh, higher music and I wanted to do it on bass because I loved bass and that's kind of what I enjoyed playing. And they're like, oh, you can't do that. I'm afraid we can't grade bass <laughs> and like an electric bass, yeah. right? And uh, so I'd done a bit of guitar before. So basically I had to do classical guitar and I had to get it to grade five. So I had nine months oh, to get it to wow. grade five. But you're a kid though, you work like crazy, yeah, don't you? Yeah. Um, so then I then then I had to do a second instrument and they were like, well, can I do bass? They said, no. <laughs> so I had to do orchestral percussion. Oh, wow. I did not know this. <laughs> I was a timpanist. Really? Yeah, wow. yeah. I fucking love timpanists. I bet. <laughs> it's yeah, great. Very cool. <laughs> really good. Um, anyway, like when I when when I started the studio, I was, that album was me getting good at or not even good, not even competent, adequate at playing guitar. I remember just sat in that corner doing a 12-string guitar part with a duffel coat on, <laughs> and I could see my breath coming out. Like, I'm sure many people who've had studios yeah. like this have been in that position. I almost got hypothermia in here once. Wow. That's uh, that's that's another another story. <laughs> um, but uh, so, so, yeah, so it's it's quite a ramshackle place. But it's it's a great place. Like it's um, the positives of this place have been the affordability. Like yes. we were talking to somebody about this. So I think making music is well, it's definitely prohibitively expensive. Yes, for so many people, um, and it's just been sort of stubbornness and luck that I've been able to have this place. Like when we found it, as I said, it was like one hundred and sixty pounds yep. a month. It's next to nothing, isn't it, you know? And then all this gear, I've, the majority of it, I've, because I'm quite an, I wouldn't say an obsessive collector because I I, I kind of don't, I don't. <laughs> I mean, maybe, I'm looking maybe around I, and looking, There's 10 tape machines in here. <laughs> but the reason there's 10, I'll, I'll justify. Well, the reason there's 10 tape machines here because spare parts are so kind of, uh, well, they just don't exist. Yes. So anytime I see a 3M tape machine, I, I'm just kind of like, shit, I'm going to have to find some money to get this because, yeah. you know, I just hate the idea of not having them, you know, because yeah. they're, they're, they're such a integral part of what we, we do here at ATA. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> it's bad, though. I'm, get, I'm getting rid of they're They're good. Like the, the M79s, like I, they are a sort of safety net. Yeah. Like because it's like... Okay, if those die, I can I can always use one of these, but I don't like using them as much. Not as much fun to me, <laughs> you know. Yes, yeah. Um, but anyway, I'm about to get them like properly refurbed, which which will be fantastic. So, does that explain anything about ATA, <laughs> 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 or should I say something more about ATA? No, no, that explains it perfectly. I mean, uh, I one of the things I find really interesting, and I seem to have this conversation quite a lot, is um, that lots of studios, especially the ones that seem to work, are in 
places where you wouldn't expect them to be. So you yes. would, you know, with the garage closed, you'd never know that this would That's be a the studio idea. that looks like a like <laughs> own garages. Yeah. Um, and you know, my studio is in the living room of a, an old flat. Yeah. Um, in a working men's club. Yeah. And I love that, and you know, I love the studios that seem to survive. And it, you know, it, my rent's cheap. Yeah. And that's uh, that's how I make it work. Well, that that that's probably the underlying factor, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's cheap rents. That's it. <laughs> Rather than searching for somewhere odd, it's more like, where can I afford <laughs> to stick a studio? Yes. Like, yeah, we both know, or most of us know, like if if we had this in London, this wouldn't happen. Absolutely. ATA not, no. wouldn't exist no, as no. a thing. You know, it's like having the allowance, you know, to sort of that it doesn't bankrupt me to sort of run this place has allowed me the years and years of kind of uh you know sharpening or honing my our craft yes. of making music and how we want to go about me making music because i think i was about to i was about to say it's um it's quite different to or it feels quite different how to how a lot of people go about making music but to me it's how music should be made and how music was made yes um now i'm not Oh, that is such a faux pas. <laughs> oh, it's my parents FaceTiming. Oh, oh, I'm, not, oh, I'm not editing this out. Sorry. That's fair enough. <laughs> Shameful. Um, so the yeah the the way the way that we make music in here or or we want to make music, lots of different ways of making music, isn't there? You yes. know, uh, but the the way for us, it does involve involves time. You know yes. what I mean to sort of like that's that's kind of how, one of the things that baffles me about sort of or how I feel so lucky to have this is because I have the time to experiment and like I'm not looking at a clock. You know, if I want to record something again, it's awkward <laughs> to get people <laughs> back in or whatever, you know, but we can if we want to, you know, so the we like to it's not always entirely live in fact i would say it's rarely it's entirely live but we want to set out doing things like they did back when they made sort of these classic albums so one one of the things that i love about a tape machine because this is how uh, a sort of one of the things i've grown to understand it's not necessarily the tape machine that's making it sound like the the 60s or or that kind of classic period of making records it's about the process that the tape machine imposes upon you mm-hmm. once you understand that you can just transfer that to whatever you're doing you know so one of the things that the tape machine does is quite a crude kind of transport uh tape machine kind of thing so drop-ins edits I'd rather just start the tune again. Yes. So we often, and that scares the bejesus out of people. What? <laughs> Would what you're going to wipe over it or don't wipe over it? So oh god, so often I've wiped over really good takes as well, just because I'm kind of like, nah, it can be better. And then you're like, oh, the, like the best. <laughs> I'm sorry, I do rabbit on. Go one of it. the best, one of the best sort of uh, stories about this, um, of of sort of like getting a take. Um, Yost Hendricks, you know. Yes, fan, uh, fantastic drummer. Fantastic drummer. Yost has been part of ATA Records for a long time. Uh, so me and Yost, we work on a band called The Sorcerers. And uh, 
so we were making the Sorcerer latest album, Sorcerer's Album, worth checking out if you fancy doing it. It's called, <laughs> yeah, I, I said it's called and I can't remember the title of it, In Search of the Lost City of the Monkey God. There you go. I've heard um, it and I can clarify that it is definitely worth playing. So Yost was up for maybe two days, I think, or something to track all the drums. So the, here's an example of like how we'll track something, right? So with uh, the Sorcerer's, uh, Yost on drums, myself on bass, and my label partner Pete on percussion, and we just track all the tracks. So we've kind of got in our heads what is going to be on on top of it afterwards, but we'll just track all those live as a little rhythm section, basically. And um, Pete had gone for the day because he had childcare, had to pick up his kid or something, and it was left with me and Yost, and I was knackered, and Yost was kind of like, "Oh, come on, let let's do a few more things." At which point we wrote a couple of like really nice things uh, that are that are on the album, and one of them, uh, a track called "End Credits." Now, on our forty-five release of that album, there's the alternate take of uh, "End Credits." Okay. So me and Yost wrote this thing dead quick, and a fucking brilliant, banging sort of uh, track, and. <laughs> We were like, we'll knock this out in seconds. It took us three hours. <laughs> like it really did because it like the contrast between the A and the B section, the the sort of the wind kept on going out of our sails when yeah. we were doing it. So there's one one uh, version of it that we did to a click, and there's one version that we didn't do it to a click. So we just thought we'd repurpose that as a thing, and like we did an alternate version of it when we came to finish the track off. Uh, but yeah, we like to we like to try and. We like to get complete takes. That's that's one of the things that I think makes the music. Uh, I was about to say really good, but that sounded uh, big-headed. Satisfactory yes. <laughs> to what I'm trying to achieve. It's like you you want to get from start to finish on a track, and what that would surprise you, or maybe it wouldn't, how difficult that is for so many people. Mm-hmm. You know that just being able to get from beginning of a tune to the end of the tune, you know. Is, is really hard. So that's one of the things that it's like, you know, uh, we try and do or what the tape machine has helped us realise. You know, it's like, well, you just get a, comp- you get a performance. Yes. Um, but one of, one of the things that I have always thought or, or sort of it ca- became apparent when or this thought became apparent to me when I changed sound cards Okay. The computerized side of it, you know, yep. sort of the way that I get the uh, music from the analog tape to the computer uh, to mix it, because it's pretty costly to uh, finish the process of having yep. all your analog gear so tip top that you can mix stuff analog. I'm almost there, as I said. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost there. Um, but when I transferred the uh, tape to the computer, and we do it at a high sample rate, you know, but we'd. I'd often notice this change to the the sound of it, and it it's like I could fling, I could do a quick desk mix of a track through my desk and onto a two track, and then you'd sort of do it onto the computer and mix it. And you'd be like, "Where's it? Where's where's it gone? Where's the quality yeah. of it gone?" You know. So we uh, we changed changed sound card. A friend of mine at Green Mount Studios, who are like brilliant producers and engineers, they started using this sound card called the Lynx Aurora. Yes. And all of a sudden, I didn't lose the sound of my tape machine when it got transferred through. Um, but one of one of the things that that sort of made me think about is, and th- maybe this is a difference, you know, between 
recording now and recording back then that maybe slightly prohibits how people make music is that when you do a take on this tape machine, have you ever recorded to the tape machine in here with me? Or is it mainly, be, it's mainly been on projects that have just been like, yeah, they've, they've, they've been just gone to computer, haven't they? Yeah. So what I found with the tape machine is you'd put something down, and this is when I'd record other bands as as well that you know that aren't anything to do with an ATA. So I'm kind yeah. of observing how they're you know reacting to stuff. They do a take and they come through, and you press play, and their jaws would hit the ground. They kind of be like, "Wow, oh, it sound really good." So a lot of this equipment, they obviously was geared around making the music sound good immediately. Yes, you know what I mean. Yeah, Whereas yeah. computers. Most people are trying to make the music sound good afterwards, you know, because it's all in the box. Like yeah. all the stuff that, that gives it the, the kind of like, oh, that's nice, is in the computer. It's not on the way into the computer, right? <laughs> yeah. So like with this stuff and how I was sort of taught by people that kind of gave me advice was get the closest sound to the finished record as you can possible before it hits the tape, right? So people would come through here and they go, shit, that sounds really good. And then they go back through to the room and perform with confidence. Yes, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's kind of like, we sound great. Yeah. You know, whereas for most people, like they're experienced in a studio when they are recording is they're kind of like, oh, that's a bit cold, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And they don't feel confident, like they lose their vibe. They lose their kind of, you know, uh, yeah, they just lose their vibe. And it's like you're, you're working hard to get back to the thing in your head that you thought that you were going to be doing. Yes. You know? Yeah, yeah. So you can do that without that equipment. But that's how I'd always say to you, you know, when like we were talking, you know, say about advice about what to do when setting up yep. a studio, like things to buy, you know, and I was always kind of like, what's really important? I was kind of like, well, preamps. Because I often found that like a, a really good preamp would make an average mic sound really good. Yes. It'd make most mics sound, you know, really good sort of thing. And then you're at that point, or not at that point, you're at the beginning of that point of going, oh, this sounds good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, let's do this instead of kind of thinking to yourself, right, I've got to, you know, make sure I do this. So I'll stick my Ampex plug in. Oh, there we go. You know, yeah. I've got a creaky seat, by the way. I've noticed. Oh, I have to. It's fine. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, 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 yeah, so the, the equipment does so much. But, you know, when I've been thinking about this kind of analogy, one of the things I thought to myself was, well, how often back in the 60s did bands get to go and listen to playback? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. so one of the the things I'm, I'm sort of, or as a label we've been interested in is library music from the 60s. Yeah. So for people who might not know, that's sort of just uh, music for film, television, you know, stuff like that for adverts. But the quality of that stuff is jaw-dropping. Yeah. It's absolutely jaw-dropping. But I was thinking about those guys, right? And first of all, they'd never go into playback. You know, they because they, they were hired guns, weren't they? Yeah, if yeah. You, well, maybe they would go into playback. I don't know. Like, I was trying to think. I think I have seen photographs. Back to my research. I have <laughs> seen photographs of them in control rooms like the players but i'm sure that's not till like later in their careers where they weren't just doing library music you know so i was talking to um alan hawkshaw okay so have you heard of, you heard of alan no. you heard of alan hawkshaw no alan hawkshaw's from leeds oh, is he? right so alan hawkshaw like a great 
<laughs> a great way for you to know him. Like yes. you, yeah, I'm sure you're sort of um, old enough. Grange Hill. Oh yeah. Do, wrote, do, do. Yeah, so Grange Hill was a track called Chicken Man. <laughs> That's <laughs> okay. what it was originally called. So Grange Hill wasn't written for Grange Hill. Okay. It was just written in a in a library music session. Mm. Now Alan Hawkshaw um is a Hammond organ player, yeah. mainly. Okay. Um and anyway, I was listening to so he's from Leeds. He's done a huge amount of library music. He wrote uh, Channel Four News. <laughs> uh. <laughs> played on Grandstand. I think he played on Grandstand because it was his Keith Mansfield that wrote that, I think. Yeah. Um, but these guys, so I was just thinking about about their ability, right? So their sessions, like w- one thing you can do if you read Alan's Alan Hawkshaw's book, because he's, he's got a book, yeah. uh, it's sort of just about his his career and everything. He um, he got a bit of his session diary, and it's it blow your fucking nuts off. Like they were literally, and oh by the way, here's another plug for you yeah. is a, a friend of mine made a film called the library music film so oh, if you're interested in library music yeah. it covers so many aspects of like recording writing you know and just amazing music uh, you know from all over europe and a little bit i don't think it, they touched on america at all because it like uh, but it was very specifically a european thing you know, it felt it feels very british or yeah. very italian or very french uh, but that has a lot of information about this stuff okay. that I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. But in in that thing, they go on about they had like a string section on mopeds that were just going around London, you know, trying to make all the sessions. You know, they'd be doing like uh, I think there was an early session that would take you up to sort of just after nine, and then like an eleven to one, and then like a you know what I mean. So they they could yeah. be doing four sessions a day. Well, they were all, they were all three hours in length, weren't they? Exactly. So Union contract. Something that we were thinking about doing here. Yeah. Like, like because kind of blue is two, three and a half hour sessions, two three and a half hour sessions. It's, it's, That's all. Kind of, like, obviously, there was years of practice, yeah. preparation, thought. You know, the band had been playing together for you know, but two three hour sessions. Mind blowing, isn't it? Absolutely mind blowing. Um, and <laughs> kind of blue. Um, every track in kind of blue is the first time that they played the track from start to finish i didn't know that yeah that's a there's a great book on that as well about the making of kind of blue i uh i think i own it yeah it's, it's, <laughs> is it, it, is it can years. a guy called can it is, is it yeah. ash ash ashley can ashley can yeah. i think i have it but i it's been years since I've it's, it. it's beautiful when he talks about the in the prologue about uh i think it's in columbia records i might be wrong but the the guy comes up you know pair of white gloves on here's the reels you know puts down two reels threads it up ding and you hear miles davis's voice kind of and then it just goes into bill evans's piano intro yeah into you know so every tune in every tune in that is the first time that they played it from start to finish so i think there's a, a sort of outtakes thing where you hear the beginning of uh, freddie the freeloader or something yeah. they get i don't know not even a minute in and Miles Davis calls it and they start it again. You know, so it's it's like that. Yeah. So the 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 point of that is just the sheer ability of these guys, right? So you go through and listen to the KPM stuff, which Alan Hawkshaw did a lot on, and every solo, right? These guys aren't complicated complex players, right? Yeah. But every solo just does exactly what it needs to do. Every organ hit, everything. There's such disciplines. Uh, sort of amazingly honed players 
that can just go, ready? Here we go. Bang. D done. Next, right, we've got three tunes to get through. Tune two? Okay, everybody, have a look. You know, they didn't get yeah, they didn't get yeah. the parts two weeks before. <laughs> it's like, here you go, yeah, we're doing this. Okay. You know. So they have to almost... I think there's some something I really enjoy about 60s and 70s sort of session musicians. Um, mm. You know, some of the my favorite players like Philly Joe Jones, uh, yeah, and uh, Carol Kay, yeah, um, who are uh, yeah, and these just ridiculous players. Who the reason that I like them so much is that I think when they're uh, when they're doing these sessions that you're talking about, they almost have to default to um, to sort of uh, how must explain this. So they they can't try out new things necessarily. Everything has to be in their arsenal. So they just mm. they're just playing stuff that they know is going to fit really well and works. <laughs> and there's a, there's a there's a there's a brilliant uh, sorry to interrupt you. There's a brilliant YouTube video. So have you ever seen the film called The Wrecking Crew? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. So have you seen the the bit where uh, is it uh, Tedesco? Johnny, is it Johnny Tedesco? I think so, yeah. The guitar player for the Wrecking Crew yeah. is doing a seminar about Phil, you know, working as a mu musician. Yeah. And he's doing, a, I think, first of all, a session uh, like Charlie's Angels, I think he said it was, yeah. in Mexico. Yeah. And he plays the sit like this flamenco lick. And then he's somewhere else and they go on about uh, like Tijuana, Bra and he just plays the sit. <laughs> like every time they ask him for some sort of lick that is slightly south of the border of America, yeah. not ma doesn't matter what country, he just plays that lick. <laughs> that That's my sort of like flamenco lick. Yeah. Yeah. And he laughs because he's like nobody ever twigged. No, I've you seen know. that. I've seen that clip. It's, but the the exactly um, Carol is a brilliant, just a just an amazing. You know the 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 fact. Like I've I've done this once, and I need to. I just again, it's like finance, isn't it? You know, it goes right to the back burner. You can get a bass lesson from Carol K. The time when I did it, it was thirty five pounds. Thirty five pounds to have a Skype hour. With Carol Kay in our living room, the stuff I learned from that that lesson, you know, is so fascinating. Just speaking to her, you know, because like again, the difference between how those players play, where they come from, how their musical journey has been informed, like the difference between so like the difference between uh, drummers now and drummers then is all the rock drummers came through a jazz. Yep. sort of lens didn't they Absolutely. like a friend of mine and I don't, like again I don't know the names right but a friend of mine was telling me uh, another drummer who works here uh, like a an old friend of mine who's got that kind of ginger baker thing about his mm -hmm. drumming he's a jazz drummer right yeah. now he was saying all the British dra jazz, uh, rock drummers went through one guy who he kind of went through as well I I don't know enough about this story, right? But it's kind of like like Phil is it Phil Seaman, the yes. guy that taught Ginger Baker. Yes. Um, he also taught Mitch Mitchell. The guy, the, sorry, not Phil Seaman. This guy also taught Mitch Mitchell. You know, so they all came through this sort of like one guy. Yeah. So rock drummers now though, is they come they come through learning rock music first of all. Yes. So their feel is completely different. Yeah. Than the feel of these classic drummers of that time. But the thing is, like, even Ringo's feel is completely different as well because of his sort of setup. Because he's like, I don't know enough about his upbringing, but was he a jazz drummer? I feel like it was more like a not a show drummer, but you know, he did bands. Yeah, if you is that right? 
I think so, yeah. And uh, he, as far as I'm aware, he didn't have men, any if, or many, if any, lessons. Yeah. Um, and I think that coming out of like this skiffle thing of the yes, 50s, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, still jazz tinted. Yes, yeah, and but the whole not sort of early rock and roll thing. Yeah, is, you know, rock and roll beat a lot. Yeah. Of, it's, it's it's essentially a jazz beat. Yeah, and there's the the shuffle thing that doesn't yeah. tend to t- exist much nowadays. But no shuffle. They all knew how to play a good shuffle. Yeah, you know, Ringo's a great example of what we're kind of discussing in the sense that he, um, he plays what's necessary. There are times when he can sort of stretch out on Beatles yeah. records, but especially the first few albums, <laughs> it's, yeah, stretch out as far as. Well, he didn't work. I'm laughing because I was like reading that bit about him, just really didn't want to. No, no. And I get that. I totally get that because, like, as a player, like, I'm not a flash player. I don't have like because I I don't. I don't want to be. I want to be a bass player. Like I'm not interested in sort of music for musicians. Yeah, bass you know player I mean? for songs. Yeah, I'm going to put, I'm going to play the tune. I'm going to do the best. You know, the best I can within that tune. Yeah. But I can I can understand with Ringo. It's sort of like I have so little interest. Like I've come from a a jazz sort of funnel. Yeah. You know, I've done a lot of it. I've got no interest in taking a solo. It's a, bores the shit out of me <laughs> like a bass solo yeah you know it's like there's, there's a handful of great bass solos and i mean a handful the rest are just fucking time for like <laughs> you know it's like <laughs> yeah it really is like there, there's um i remember at college like when because i went to leeds college of music did you go to leeds I did. college of music? i did i also did the jazz course brilliant so when I went to Leeds College of Music, I learned so little in in that. <laughs> Sorry, this isn't a good advert for Leeds College of Music. But they, the most of it I, I learned out of Leeds College of Music, yeah. right? And I remember I was lucky enough to kind of know a lot of musicians older than I was. They were just incredible. And they are incredible, you know. But there was this bass player, there was this, this singer, um, this Scottish guy. So... Another like there's a lot of Scottish people in Leeds in there. You yeah. know, it's it's kind of like a place that a lot of us uh, end up to do music. Um, so there's this uh, singer, guy called John McCallum, and he sounded like Stevie Wonder or Donny Hathaway. It's just jaw dropping. And then in his band, there was this bass player called Greg Robinson, who turned out is I don't know how much older Greg is. Maybe like four years older than me, I think. But Greg's from the same town as me. Wow. <laughs> yeah, he's from the same, same town in Scotland. I remember just being in their flat one night when I was, I think I was 18 or something, but they put on Donny Hathaway live. And it was very much the whole night was, oh, have you not heard that? Like, oh, come on, let's put on this album. <laughs> so, like, I don't know what that accent was, by the way, because neither of them are from Glasgow. Um, <laughs> so just Scottish <laughs> to me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so they put on uh, Donny Hathaway live when is captured possibly the greatest bass solo ever 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 done but i say that tongue in cheek because donny hathaway like there's uh, says before the solo starts you know the greatest bass player you know and sort of uh, i can't remember how he says it i've messed that up but he's basically like the greatest bass player in the world yeah willie weeks <laughs> boom and he does this bass solo that's so oh it's just fabulous it almost like sums up bass to me and the way he does it it's so simple as well you know, so it's it's kind of like all the other stuff just feels like fluff to me, yeah. you know, because it's like yeah. bass is a low instrument. 
So, you know, does it want to move as fast? Yes, yeah, <laughs> Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Does it want to be up here, like in the top end of it? It's like yeah. there's a few people can make that sound beautiful on an upright, you know? Yes. But sometimes it, I feel like it, it just it wants to move at the speed that it's meant to move at. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I do. And Willie Weeks' bass solo just starts off with boom, doom, 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 doom. And it's just like so... <laughs> bass yeah yeah you know he just plays the bass yes yeah you know instead i've got a terrible singing voice so that probably just came out as muffled garbage <laughs> so listen to willie willie weeks everything is everything i you know? uh, i have the album that you the Donny yeah. Hathaway album uh, because you told me to buy it i've given that album away so many times i've had so many <laughs> copies of it that i just said have it take yeah. that album away Amazing. because it's yeah so like the you know the the way that the way that people play now that sort of funnel is very different like carol k goes on about so say when we were at jazz college you know they they talk about a syllabus of scales yeah and i've got this great bit where carol k was i've, I've i recorded it on my phone i recorded yeah. the lesson and uh, she was like scales that she says scales are for squares <laughs> <laughs> said like when she was in jam sessions nobody played scales they all played arpeggios because it was bebop yeah, yeah you know yeah. so they're just like scales are for squares i yeah. say that all the time it's like, scales are for squares <laughs> like what scale do i play over this you know so again like like the the academia maybe and and the sort of the way music has gone now it often very much feels like music for musicians but sometimes i observe that these musicians aren't that great at being musical you know you ask someone like back to that thing about alan hawkshaw you ask someone to do a 16 bar solo like i want you to do you know what i mean like yeah, yeah. i was going to use a really crude analogy but you know my <laughs> pants want to be off by the end of it do you know what i mean you've got 16 bars <laughs> yeah. what are you going to do yeah, yeah you know to kind of like you know and those guys could do it it's uh, you know, it's really, it's really interesting. I mean, we were talking before we started recording about what, uh, what do I want to discuss with mm. you? And um, <laughs> one of the things that I really enjoy about this podcast, particularly, and the conversations that I get to have, is it's a, uh, you know, I you there's so much gear in here, and I'd like to talk oh, yeah. about some of it. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, as intending on talking about a lot of gear and we've spent 45 minutes chatting about the way that the music ends up being as a result of the of the method of recording yeah. that you're using and that's that's a, sums it up for me that yes okay there is absolutely a sound uh, attached to sort of uh 60s or that golden yes, era totally. recording but it's it's an attitude yeah absolutely before anything yeah, yeah. And that's one of the biggest takeaways that I've had from knowing you yeah is Okay, the service that I offer at my studio, sort of drum recording, I have to cater for a modern sound to mm. a degree. You know, I send people a lot of stems. That was one of the biggest discussions we used to have was, why do you have so many mics? And that's yeah. something I was going to bring up earlier. Brilliant. Is when I've done sessions here, we it's like a kick and overhead and maybe a snare. And that that's just it. And yeah. the sound's amazing, like you said. And uh, I love that. So it incorporated in my setup mm. is that minimal setup. Yeah. If I was to mix it, that's what I yeah, do. Yeah. Um, but I try hard to approach my sessions and approach the, my mentality at the studio uh, with a, with the influence of what we've just been discussing. So mm -hmm. 
you know, I'll do full takes and I'll try, I try, it's it's on the way in that's important. And that's yeah. all of that mentality stuff that we've just been discussing is is so, I find it fascinating. Yeah. And I, I, that's one of the things I'm most grateful for having known you for is that is knowing, is sort of learning that way around it, yeah. even though setup wise, it, the way I work is very different to the way yeah. that you work here, even though I'm I'm sort of, you know, uh, in inverted commas, sort of working from the sort of vintage side yeah. of things. It's certainly, you know, a lot more. Modern. It's the technology that's that's informed that kind of, because for a lot of people, they they don't know what they want, do yes. they? That's another thing. Yeah. And especially to do with the like the difference, uh, the equipment here, you make decisions first. Yes. You know, if you if we're going to chop out, like again, I say that, but you know, I use a computer, so at times, you know, the, those decisions will go onto a computer. You yeah. know, but we're very. An another really funny, or just not that funny, is it? <laughs> another interesting example of kind of you know people's um, opinions or or sort of perception, you know, about how how you do stuff. So this ties in very nicely with our latest release, um, <laughs> which yeah, which is um, which we did years ago, absolutely years ago. It's called "Somebody Stole My Thunder," and it's a big band. So I I got a friend of mine who works with a label called Steve Parry who's a big band arranger, right? Yes. Guy's amazing. He, I love working. He's, he's so interesting, so knowledgeable. He'd blow your head off about Beatles stuff. I uh, That's interesting. I was going to say I recognise yeah. the name and it will be from I big think, band scores, reading him on... Like, yeah, it, totally. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I think he even played... Um, so Steve Steve plays Everett. <laughs> Steve's one of those guys. He's he just... Music just flows through him. You know what I mean? He's, yeah, yeah. He's a, he's a great sort of band leader as well and, and stuff like that. And and this, again, this is going to tie into something I'm going to say in a second, but I think he played in Will... He did a depth session in Will Lee's... Is it Will Lee, the bass player? He has um, he has a Beatles band. Will Lee's like... A, oh, he plays on somebody's talk show in America. He's like one of those... But he's oh, a big right. session bass player, but he has a really good Beatles tribute band. Ah. And uh, Steve was making me laugh because... He plays everything, so he <laughs> he was playing trumpet, trombone, French horn, and flute. <laughs> wow, wow! <laughs> you know, just for for this sort of for this one gig. But anyway, the um, it might it might well be the Fab Four. I'm sort of thinking, I don't know. Is he New York based? Uh, could be, probably because if it's New probably. York, it will be the Fab Four. I and mean, obviously, we were chatting before. I've had Rich Bagano on on here, who's yeah. a drummer in that. But I I don't. I I only like well I know of Will Lee because he does the um, heard it through the grapevine on James Jamerson's uh, you know Bible bass book yeah, you know yeah. it's track three it's sort of on that he's he's doing that one, um, but so we were doing so th this session like I asked Steve to sort of arrange some horns for, and I think we ended up doing like five saxes, four trombones. And four trumpets, I think. How many mics do you think we used? <laughs> so this is all tracking them all at once. All, all in there, yeah. So we had like playback speaker playing the the sort of yeah. you know the 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 track. Well, there's sort of logical. <laughs> I say logical. The the way that it would be done is that everybody has a mic. So <laughs> what's that? Of course. <laughs> that's that twelve. Yeah. And then a couple of room mics. Yeah. So I would say, my my guess for a normal studio would be like <laughs> fifteen, maybe. Two. Two. <laughs> <laughs> Two microphones. Amazing. So we uh, had... Just, do you remember what they were? Just yeah, to, absolutely. Um, they were two, they were two uh, RCAs. Uh, well, not RCAs, actually, but copies of um, RCAs. 
No, what, two RCA uh, VAR acoustics, okay. which are like a poor man 77. Yeah. RCA 77, which is like a quite renowned uh, ribbon microphone that's used a lot. Um, so we had the saxes and the drum, like the drum corner. Yeah. So because the ribbon mics are figure of eight, we put three saxes on one side, two on another. So they were tucked away over there and they had the null point of the figure of eight pointing towards the brass and all the brass were kind of in a line I think just playing towards <laughs> the other mic <laughs> right now that is one of the best horn recordings I've got of a big band wow it sounds like to this day so we basically we released it because we had a bit of a hole in our release schedule so we're like all right like we should put we need to put something out so we took these two tracks that we did at the very beginning of the sort of start of the label and I listened to them. They came back on the 45 and I just thought, God, what, what, what didn't, you know, what, what did I know back then that I don't know now? Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it was really interesting listening to these tracks, but the sound, because it's a big band kind of thing, the sound of the horns on that are amazing. And there's so many contributing factors to that which i'll say in a minute but the funniest thing was is we're in here and we play back from band comes or the the section come through and one of the, the trombone players goes wow that sounds fucking incredible like it was really he says that's the best playback i've ever heard you know but it, it's back to that thing of yeah. it just it, i've used the right equipment that sort of does that i have very little eqs here or anything so it's got a lot to do with them as well yeah yeah and so the first thing I said to him, I said, we're going to do another take. Uh, so and he says, oh, so, so you're going to keep that one then? I'm like, no. <laughs> so he couldn't get his head round that we had to wipe, you know, because that we were using the old, the other version of that tape machine, which only had oh, 13 working tracks. This one, that one is 14 out of the 16. Right. You know, so anyway, yeah. it's like, if you don't get it right, we're doing it again. Yeah. Like, I've got nowhere to keep it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So... Anyway, he was like, what? Couldn't get his head around it. But went through. Anyway, one of the main reasons I think that recording sounds so good is because of Steve. So he's called, like, jokingly, Sergeant Parry, right? <laughs> but everybody, like, you can see them, the you know, when he's conducting this sort of section, nobody wants to fuck up. Yeah, yeah. And that's a similar thing, like, when you talk to those guys back about sessions in the 60s, you didn't want to be the guy that fucked up no, no. because you're doing it again and then you're going to be the guy, you know, that caused that to happen. You might not even get asked back ever again. Yeah, Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. You... And nowadays it's, uh, it would just be a case of, it's, it's cool, we'll just, we'll just delete that one and you can overdub yeah. it or something. Or, or we'll keep all of them and we'll comp out of it. Again, which is not, you know, that that's I'm not saying that's a bad thing either yeah. though because like... Um, when I used to have, you know, earlier you are talking about, what should we talk about? Maybe one of the first things that you worked on. I used to have an Otari tape machine. Sorry, I hit the mic. Uh, I used to have an Otari tape machine that compared to these tape machines is like running a computer. Yeah. Like drop-ins. You can drop in syllables. Oh, really? You know, like things like that. It's incredible wow. what you can do with it, you know. So, like, often, you know, I've comped together takes that way. Do you, you know what I mean? So there's nothing wrong with comping together takes, but yeah. there is this element of never committing to your actual take. Yes. So surely that attitude or that feeling has to come through in the music of just like, whatever, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's all right, yeah. comp it together. Instead of that feeling of like, 
Man, and when you hear that horn section, that's two mics, and you kind of go, how's that two mics? Because they were playing like motherfuckers. Yeah. You know, they, yeah, they were like, yeah. and I've got a video, it's on our sort of Facebook somewhere years ago yeah. of Steve, you know, just going, right! <laughs> you know, so everyone, you know, and he's got that kind of vibe about him. Like me and him were actually talking about this only if, like about a week ago because I've just put out the, you know, we've just put out this 45. And I was laughing and, and he was like, yeah, because I'm a belligerent fucker. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's going to be done his way. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's dead interesting. You know, so over, like since, you know, you mentioned this podcast, I have been thinking lots about, you know, what is, I, I do anyway, but, you know, like in terms of this podcast, I was thinking, what is 60s recording? What is, you know, and there's there's so many aspects uh, of the, in that chain, yeah. you know, that, that make or have made these records and they're not, they're not one chain. They're different chains, you know, so... People talk about maybe, so we specialise in a lot of kind of like funk stuff and things. And I like a lot of rare stuff that people have, you know, that you, things that you discover that you're like, where was that made? You know, like a, a good example of this, my mate has a 45 because I, I I've got a very good friend who's a, a record collector who educate, like a lot of my education, like back to that thing about, yeah. you know, education out of college. Yeah. I lived with him for like six years. Right. We spent so much time sort of like early hours of the morning what you haven't heard this he'll go <laughs> off come back with six records the knowledge that this guy has anyway he's got like a 45 of like uh, this R&B you know for the black R&B musicians cussing the governor of a certain state you know there's 45 of them going and I hope he goes into surgery and when he goes into surgery the lights fail and they're <laughs> operating in the dark and they only have a rusty spoon you know and it's just like how did that record get made yeah it's clearly in the 60s yeah, yeah clearly in a time when like maybe making a record like that might cause you a bit of difficulty <laughs> you know what I mean is that yeah. like so there's so many aspects to kind of like uh, production of that kind of music so for example in relation to that kind of rare funk a lot of people think the production is just add a lot of distortion yes. onto this. Or lots of people think funk music is just like a beat and a, and a groove that goes on. But sometimes that funky break was in the middle of an amazing tune. Or that funky break was the intro to a terrible tune. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or like the whole idea of distortion. It's not something that they were kind of going, oh, do you know what? Let's drive the shit out of this. Yes. It was maybe... You've paid for an hour, son. Get the track done. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Or yeah, something yeah. like that. And it's just like, right, well, we've done it. Okay, we better just press it up. Oh, the drums are horribly distorted. Well, what can we do about it? Yeah, yeah. It was recorded to a two-track. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Or or something like that. Yes, you know, yeah, there's yeah. so many of the... So those things weren't so much a stylistic choice, you know, that they made. Yeah. And then... Sorry, I was thinking about this this morning. Yeah, See, yeah. that's why I'm rabbiting on about. So then you've got things like the idea that equipment was primitive or sound was primitive. That equipment was not primitive. Yeah, it was limited, but not primitive. I've like I've got some uh, recordings of this blues guys from 1958. You wouldn't believe how like for what how quiet. There's no noise floor on the tape. There's no noise floor at all. And it's an Ampex. And I've heard stuff on early Ampex machines. Remember when I said to you, you're like setting up the studio. You said, what should I buy? Yeah. I said, I said a four-track Ampex. <laughs> you did say that. Because it's like like the, the preamps, I couldn't believe how good they are. 
And this recording is like the how hi-fi it is from 1958. Wow. And my mastering engineer said a little bit about this. He was kind of like, well, a lot of recordings got fucked in the mastering process, you know, because it just didn't, you know, because mastering was kind of quite different back then, wasn't yeah. it? Like, especially in that Jeff Emmerich book. It's fascinating. It, like, I heard you mention that yes. book. But, like, it's fascinating when they talk about how you're training once you got out of making tea, you know, sort of started in the mastering room because yep. you've got to know how to master before you know what to sort of provide somebody yep. to then master. You know, so, yeah, the equipment was um, limited, as in, like, maybe they only had one track to record to or two tracks to record to or, like, the one I love that, I guess, not slips through your, your idea, but you don't often see them anymore because they're useless in today's music in yeah. a way is a three track ampex yeah so it'd be like band vocals overdubs yeah do you know what i mean it's yeah, just yeah. like three track tape machine what <laughs> <laughs> you know it, it, it seems because we we work in in sort of even numbers yeah, don't we, we? Do, you yeah. want left and right yes. you want stereo or you want okay well i want four <laughs> yeah. you know you know and stuff like that so you know it the 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 equipment was limiting but it was not primitive like a friend of mine has a early 60s or maybe even late 50s Ampex 300. Yeah. And he stuck a microphone. It was in his house. His lass was having a... a she has a band. Yeah. They're having a rehearsal downstairs, a kind of like folk thing. Stuck a fairly flat, nondescript, like mic, a, a KM, KM84, I think, Neumann, uh -huh. which is a very flat mic. You know, yes. it's not very characterful. You're not like, wow, listen. Yeah. You know, it's just like, you know, what you what you record... It's what you get. Yeah. Anyway, stuck it through a tape machine, one track, got the mic in the right place. I, I, you couldn't fault the recording. You were just like that. It's in, you could release that. It's incredible. You know, so to me, like that's why it always makes so much more sense. It's like, why fanny around on the other end? Yeah, yeah. You know, like trying to make all the... Because I often find when you're mixing, oh, man, it just seems so sort of destructive as a process that you're like... To make something better, yeah, you're taking so much away. Whereas, if you get it right at the beginning, <clears throat> I have people have recorded here and taken files away, and then like one of the things that they've said is kind of I didn't have to do anything to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, which I again, like I I don't think I've got any special skill. I was just taught a few very important things. Yes. Get that sound as close as it, like, or people, some people say, Oh, wow, how'd you get that sound? I'm like, Oh, buy this <laughs> because all I have to do is turn the fader up, yeah, you yeah. know, and and it does the, the rest for me in some respects. Yeah, I'm being slightly tongue in cheek, but you, you but know, this is a conversation we've had in the past a lot of times. And I, again, I think it's something that I've learned from you, and I get the same, the same thing back mm. for my drums, like, not to again, not to like blow my own trumpet, but it's. If I send stems to people, often I'll I'll get back. I don't really have to do anything to them. Brilliant. Know? And I don't have yeah loads of plugins yeah. on, on anything. It's just the mics are in a good position. Yeah. And they are the drums are good yeah. and well tuned, and I've got good preamps mm. and, and decent quality mics. Not and and just oh, I've taken all the advice that you gave me. Yeah. yeah. You know the best thing that you said to me about mics once was that imagine them as being a photograph of of what they're looking. Yeah. At. And it's just been gold dust. Yeah. yeah. And that means... It's a cracker, like, that one, isn't it? Oh, brilliant. It's it not mine. It was a, well, it just, <laughs> oh, absolutely not. It just sort of made, changed my perspective yeah. of what a microphone is. And that means that now, 
I can. Yes. Th- I I remember I remember when it clicked, and I think I probably came to see you shortly after, and I can remember just being buzzing mm. like the the day that the day it all worked, and I made everything just sort of went together. <laughs> it's and, a good day, isn't it? Well, the the, the sound was just. <laughs> I mean, you know what it's yeah, like. Yeah, yeah, that's what you I mean. It's a good day. You day. go, wow, listen to that. Because how many days in the studio do you spend setting stuff up where it doesn't work and you go home None. deflated? <laughs> 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 I, you just feel like, you know, maybe, what have you done today? Oh, well, yeah. I just... I just <laughs> yeah, I, I just this... think I got something wrong yeah. for eight hours. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then that day where I listened back to it and it yeah. sounded huge brilliant and there was and i looked at all yeah, the plugins yeah. and there was no no all the the channel list on my yeah, yeah, next yeah. window there was no plugins on it yeah. and i was like it sounds amazing and i, I there's no plugins on it it's, what is this it's <laughs> such a lovely feeling isn't it yeah it was it was brilliant i am um, a, f- a few things like with, with that i remember talking there's a there's a drummer that I don't know if you've come across here that I used to that I used to use quite a bit. I'd like to use a lot more again, uh, but it's just in a, in another city, which always makes it a little bit difficult. It's yeah. a guy called Errol Roberts. Yes, and he was around when uh, before I started the label. I did a lot of music with him. I remember the first time I gigged with him. I we had no sound check, and I was sort of first time with the band. It was down at the wardrobe in Leeds downstairs, and I'm not kidding. It was like counted it off first note i was just like holy shit like that he is a phenomenal example of someone who can get to the start from the start to the end of a tune you know perfect you know exactly how you've asked him to yes and his groove he just sits immediately it's like bang and he's, he's told me a lot of like i've learned i had learned a lot from him about stuff like one of the things he said to me once and back to that thing about the ability you know as a musician he said in his early 20s, he went and did this Celtic rock session and it was just a dead simple beat he was asked to do, but he couldn't really do it. And he was just like that. It's something that just made him go, shit, you know, like surely I've got to be able to do this first and foremost. And I know a lot of people who are kind of like when they see him play, they're a bit like, oh, he doesn't do much sort of thing. I'm just like, wow, you don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> you don't get it. You you just don't get it. Yeah. You yeah. know, Anyway, with Errol, the I remember saying to him about uh, one microphone, you know, sort of like doing this kind of like one mic thing. And again, that came down to me not having many mics. Yeah. I don't have enough mics. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So I just, you know, we just, I'll tell you a story about the one mic thing in a second. But <laughs> like the that one mic, I said to Errol, it's like, oh, it's, you know, it's just incredible, isn't it? And, and Errol was kind of like, well, I, I, I was saying to him, isn't it amazing how sort of, good it sounds you know like a full balance kit and Errol kind of looked at me and says well that's because I balance the kit when I play it <laughs> right and and then he's, he said we were in cellar bar at the time you know just a gig after yeah. a recording great days you yeah, know what I mean yeah. when you used to be able to do all that stuff no, still do it. <laughs> uh, but anyway he, he's, he's at the kit and it's great I can, I can do a great impression of his body movements because they're so wonderful I love his body movements but he was like looking at the toms he says right well you know when I he says look at that drum kit because it's the house drum kit and there's just a mess of you know sort of hits all over the the, like the, the skin everywhere. yeah and and that kind of discoloured you know dirt kind of thing he's yeah. like see he said see on my drum kit there's a dot in the middle of each one <laughs> because every time I hit the tom I hit it right in the middle yeah <laughs> and that's how like when he hits it like that movement that I've just done he's so sure every time he hits it 
But I've got a great track that we did on this album that's not out. That um, it's kind of like a halftime folk, you know, it's a it's sort of psychedelic sixties folk thing. And he's just kind of like toms and a bit Ringo-ish in yep. a way, you know, over the the A section. But on the B section, he goes to like a tack a tack a tack a tack a tack. Yeah. And we recorded it with a click, right? When it gets to that B section, without fail, each time he hits that B section, you know, when he's that to that to that, so his his uh, cross stick is on the on the sort of crotchet, the metronome disappears. Yeah. It disappears every time, like every time he went to it, and like his ability to kind of go into this kind of feel. But that one mic thing, I remember when I I bought that mic, an RCA Vari acoustic. I bought it, you know. Uh, years ago because I'd found out that it was the poor man's version of an RCA 77. So an RCA 77 was about 1,200 quid. Yep. If you were lucky, you'd pick up a VAR acoustic for 300, okay. of which I did. Yes. Right? And we got it here and plugged it in and Eddie Hick was here Yeah, I know, and yeah. Al McSween. Yeah, I know Al. And I can't, somebody else, I can't remember who it was, but I plugged in that RCA, put it down and everybody... Everybody was dancing in the control room because it sounded like a breakbeat. Yeah. And then Al went, like Eddie came through and Al went through and played the drums and we were all just like, listen to that. I didn't have any good, you know, sort of, I had, I had just a, an old Soundcraft desk and, and this Otari tape machine and we were just like, listen to the sound of that, you know. And so in, in that aspect, that's when, you know, the piece of equipment was kind of like, wow, there you go. There's that instant gratification yeah, yeah. you know of, of the sound that you were look at, looking yes. for yeah you know i guess it's not to everybody's taste but no who's interested in everybody else's taste <laughs> <laughs> it's fascinating man it's so interesting hearing uh hearing all that stuff and all those uh all those stories there was something that was uh coming to mind when you were talking before but it's completely escaped me now um but anyway I wonder, uh how are you doing for time i'm okay for You're time right? at the moment yeah because i just... want to talk a little bit about gear Oh, he's so mean. I'm very sorry. I couldn't help myself. There was a cliffhanger that was just begging to be had there. We continue that conversation next week where Neil tells us about, uh, he sort of shows us around his studio, if you like. If you want to get some pictures of that gear uh, in front of your eyes already, you can head to my Instagram at all you need is drums and it will be on the post i put up about this podcast uh at ata records they've been kind enough to give us uh, the listeners of this podcast a 25 percent off discount code for everything that they've got up on their band camp uh, i'll put details of this up on instagram but if i could just get my uh, messages there we go so if you type in recording pod or lowercase into your checkout at Bandcamp, you'll get 25 percent off everything i own a lot of that catalogue already and it is honestly fantastic neil works with some amazing musicians neil is an amazing musician pete is an amazing musician just go and listen to that stuff and and support these guys they're doing something really really special uh up here in leeds and i i just urge you to uh to show some support for some people that are doing things in a way that we love things to be done so that's that. Uh, I don't really have much else to report. I'm still on with the the prospect of mugs. <laughs> I've spoken to my graphic designer who is putting together some mug designs for me and I will hopefully bring news of those. You'll also notice that 
I probably sound a little bit different on the intros and outros of this this week. That is because I am moving house. So my little home studio that I usually record my podcasts in has been packed up into a box. And I am now recording this in my actual studio. So I'm using a, a completely different mic and preamp and interface. So it probably, sound, it probably sounds a heck of a lot better, to be honest. <laughs> okay. Uh, all that leaves me to do is to say thank you to my good friend Joe Kane for the intro and outro music he put together for me and to my good friend David Henshaw and mug designer <laughs> for coming up with the artwork and supplying me with the beautiful artwork every fortnight um, and I will speak to you next week with the second part of my conversation with Neil thanks so much for listening and have a great fortnight goodbye <laughs>